Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray running the flight deck here at Talking Golf Central Studio One as we prepare once again to distract ourselves from the harsh realities of COVID-19 with some good old-fashioned hardcore golf chat. This week, we welcome one of the game's most knowledgeable golf course architects, whose specialist area is Canada's Stanley Thompson, a designer whose life and times, let's be honest, most of us know far too little about. Ian Andrew will join us in just a moment to talk about his new book, In Every Genius There's a Little Madness, his second about Thompson, who I, for one, am keen to find out more about. Before we meet Ian, though, let me bring in my regular co-host, Adrian Logue, who comes to us from his COVID-19 bunker at an undisclosed location in Sydney. Adrian, architecture and architects. A favourite topic of ours. Key to chat with you and Ian today, as I'm sure you are too. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, happy to join you, Rod, and uh, looking forward to chatting with Ian. Twitter address, website, do all the formalities, please. Uh, I'm uh, at Adrian Logue on Twitter, adrianlogue.com, and uh, and I believe you're at Rod underscore Mori on Twitter and talking golf one G. One G. I didn't even have com. to mention it. Thank you, mate. Well done. That all of that is true. And you can also email me rod at talkinggolf.com. Now before we bring Ian in, a couple of reminders. First things first, I was listening to a local podcast here a week or so ago, Inside the Ropes, Logue. You'd be in, uh, familiar with that, the Golf Australia podcast. Yep. One of the reasons I was listening because good friend of this pod, Mike Clayton, was on. Always listen to Clayton wherever he turns up. Now, he said something which I think might be the best take I've heard yet. Actually, it might not have been on the pod. He might have written it. But it's the best take I've heard yet on the virus and the lockdown. There's no excuse, he said, for any player to emerge from this with a bad grip. There's plenty of time to work on it right there in your land. I thought that was a good point, Logue. Indeed. He's right. But it also got me thinking. The same is true for fashion. Do you see what I did there? Uh, There's no excuse for anybody to emerge from this poorly dressed because right from the comfort of your living room, you too have access to the best in golf apparel and accessories via our good friends and sponsors, Logue. I see where you're going now. It's just dawned on me. Yeah, the Golf Society. Head to thegolfsociety.com.au. You'll find everything from shirts and trousers, belts and shoes from the best brand names, including Ralph Lauren, Peter Miller, Hugo Boss, G4, Nike and Adidas. Even better, use the URL, thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. one G and golf as Logue has reminded us. You'll get yourself a nice little discount off your first order, uh, and that's a bonus you can't knock back. On top of that, you look a million bucks the next time you hit the course. That's thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. Do you reckon I've got a future in reading ads, Logue? Look, you've got a future in designing segues, I think, to take it from a (laughs) practicing golf grips to fashion. Yeah. uh, That's unique. But that's the point to hand off to somebody to do the actual voiceover. I hear where you're coming from. Now, speaking of talking golf, for those who don't know, it's an eclectic mix of golf podcasts that we put together just so that there's a bunch of different stuff all in the one place. This week... I wanted to give a special mention to our friend Dave Hill, one bearded golfer, as many will know him, whose latest episode of the Blind Shot Pod- Blind Shots podcast is a really good listener because it's all about the magical journey that is a first golf trip to Scotland. Uh, anyone who's been to Scotland will understand. Anyone who hasn't will be inspired to go, especially after being cooped up for all this time. So that's www.talkinggolf.com for Blind Shots, plus the Talking Golf History Show, State of the Game, on the tee with Dr. P, lots and lots of good stuff over there. All right, enough about all that. Let's get on with today's episode. And as I mentioned in the intro, today's guest is both published author and respected golf course architect who's just released his second book about Canada's best-known course designer, Stanley Thompson. Ian Andrew is a forthright and interesting commentator on the game and architecture's relationship to it. He joins us from his home in Ontario, where he told me last week when we chatted to organise today's interview that his wife was gaining the upper hand in the nightly games of Scrabble that they're indulging in to entertain themselves during lockdown. Ian, welcome. Have you levelled the scores yet? No, she's been uh, beating me quite regularly in the last little while, which is uh, 
I need the I need the lockout to end just so I can uh, get my ego back together. Yeah, indeed, that's uh, quite emasculating, isn't it? Thanks for taking some time, mate. Really looking forward to chatting to you. When I suggested that we get you on the show to my uh, erstwhile colleague, Logue, he said, Ian Andrew, oh, yeah, he's the, like the Clayton of Canada, isn't he? That's a pretty good rap, isn't it, to be the Mike Clayton of Canada? <laughs> I, I wish I could live up to that. Uh, You've met Clayton. In fact, when we spoke last week, you told me you'd, you'd even played golf with Clayton. Did he get you to play 54 holes in a day? Is that what you told him? Yeah, I can't remember if we played the final. Uh, we started off at Victoria. Um, I'm trying to remember where we went. Um, oh, Peninsula was next. And then uh, I'm pretty sure we played some of St. Andrews Beach. I'm just not sure if we played all 18 holes or not. It's really kind of a blurry day. Um, and he just he put it this way. He's He's full of enthusiasm, so it was just um, – it was quite an adventure. Too much Clayton is barely enough. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that day, by the way, as I'm sure you too would have liked to have been there. Like, you, interesting conversation. You might have learnt some new words too, Ian, I'm sure, or certainly words used in a way that you hadn't considered them previously. Enough about that. Let's talk about golf Canada, golfing Canada. And Stanley Thompson in particular, I think like most people with a, a bit of an interesting course architecture, I've heard the name Stanley Thompson – kind of know a bit about uh, – I know he's Canadian. I know he, he's designed a lot of well-known courses in Canada, and that's about it, Ian. Am I missing out on a bunch of stuff by only knowing those rudimentary facts about the man? Uh, he's, without a doubt, uh, Canada's greatest architect, and, and he's the bar still. Nothing's changed in that regard. So every it seems like every architect who's worked in Canada considers him a prime influence. Uh, people around the world know Bamp Springs. Um, they may know Jasper Park. Um, and and those are the golf courses that um, it seems like people throughout the world know because of the mountains and the setting. Uh, he's also well known for Highland Links, uh, Capilano, and St. George's. And those would be probably the five best-known golf courses that he did in Canada. He's done some work in the States, but uh, not near as significant as those particular golf courses. But he's uh, built probably 100 of our golf courses. And when you take the top courses in Canada, uh, the list uh, is dominated by Stanley Thompson. What period are we talking in? When was Stanley Thompson alive? When was he designing and building uh, he, he was alive um, uh, before the 1900s. But the period of work for him would be uh, he started – there's a question of whether he started a little earlier. But I'm going to say 1919 through to 1953 when he died. Because he went to the he served in the First World War. He did. He was well, a gunner. He? But there's yeah, and there's some conjecture about whether he he began his design work before the war. Is that right? There is. Uh, there's some people who believe that he did Norway Bay and uh, a few other golf courses. But when you start to look at it, he's 15 or 16 years old. It's it's uh, well Norway Bay. I think he's like 17. And you, yeah. you you really kind of struggle with the whole idea of. Did somebody really entrust him to do 18 holes? I think he worked on some of those those projects, but I think uh, it, it's more likely that you would have had his older brother, Nickel, was already doing work at that point. And George Cumming, who all the Thompson boys knew really well, was also being asked to do that sort of work. And so I think what happens is you sometimes get sort of a, a crossover of uh, – you know, he's now the famous name, so people sort of make the attachment rather than giving the, the respect to the original designers. They, originally, Thompson worked for Thompson Cumming and Thompson, and, and Stanley would have been the third Thompson, 
or the the second Thompson in that. It would have been Nickel Thompson, George Cumming, and Stanley Thompson. And that was very short-lived. Uh, the other two decided that they would rather remain as golf pros when push came to shove because they had to make the choice between the golf design business or being the head pros at the, the two biggest clubs at the time, which were Hamilton and Toronto, Toronto Golf. So, And they made the choice with security and safety, and they also made clubs too. So they, they sort of turned back to that, and Stanley ended up with a golf design business. He was only two years removed from the war, and he, he had 10 projects on the go. Wow. And, and he himself was an excellent golfer, as I understand it. Yes, much better than people realize. He finished fourth in one of the Canadian amateurs, um, and he played in a lot of regular events. And um, uh, he never won anything, but he, he was competitive the whole way through. He was, he was pretty close to a scratch player. Which back in that day would be pretty incredible. <laughs> when scratch meant something. What did golf look yes. like in Canada at the time? And we're talking, uh, well, when did the Canadian Open start? My understanding is it might be right around the same time as the Australian Open, 1905. I think we started our Australian Open. Canadian Open was. I got it. I got to admit, I don't know for sure, but I think you're right. I think it's it's sort of in that era. And golf was pretty rudimentary. Um, you had some like I've got pictures of Toronto golf, and it's an original original location. And it's nothing special, and, and, and a lot of the courses around that time were um, kind of rustic and a little bit Victorian, uh, a lot of carry bunkers and a lot of things sitting just on, on grade and on ground. There was not a lot of anything particularly good. And then all of a sudden, Toronto Golf moved, and they brought in Harry Colt to build Toronto Golf. And there's no way I can possibly ex- explain how much of a landmark golf course that was. And it just sort of changed the game. It, and, and all of a sudden, there was such a higher standard. And we were lucky we saw Willie Park come over, and he worked a lot. Uh, I have to apologize for our – that'll chime a couple of times. That's okay. Um, uh, uh, Willie Park as well came to Canada, and then we, we saw others come up. Like we saw – we've only got one Tillinghouse, but Ross came up as well. And sort of we started to get the influence from other architects so we were lucky enough to have Colt. We had Charles Allison for a golf course in Toronto. And so all of that sort of enriched uh, the, the the golf world through the late teens, early 20s. And then all of a sudden it really took off. And that was when Stanley Thompson's business began. And so he was lucky. Not only did he observe Colt's work early on, because I'm pretty sure he caddied there right from the get-go, Um and but he also saw some of this other early work start. He was involved in some with his brother, and um, then he had all these architects come to town. And Thompson uh, formed a construction company, and he actually built Allison's course at York Downs, and he built courses for other people. So it gave him uh, an opportunity to see some of the other architects who were practicing at the time. And that included Devereux Emmett. That included uh, Walter Travis. And, you know, they're all working in the area and he got a chance to see this work. And then as things kind of took off for him, he started traveling down to New York City uh, to meet with uh, prospective people on projects because he did. He was starting to do some work outside of Canada, too. And that sort of allowed him to see a lot of what was going on in the early 20s. So I remember Jeff Cornish told me he was influenced by Tillinghast. He, he saw the work of Thomas. He saw Pine Valley. I know that. I've got a couple of different references to it. I know he saw Glen Eagles in Scotland because he talked about that. And so the influences he had, and he traveled around even when he was um, serving in the war, he traveled around with his brother Frank and they saw a lot of the Lynx courses. Sort of I wonder how much the war influenced 
Thompson. Like we often talk about the fact that Mackenzie was a camouflage expert in the war. Do you know what? Uh, well, you mentioned he was a gunner, um, but uh, is there something? How much of an influence was his military service? Because I think he started designing courses on leave from the military. Isn't he? Did he see himself at, at one point as a career soldier? Uh, that would be news to me. I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. The one thing I'm I'm a little less in tune with is some of that um, uh, biography. And I would recommend a book called The Toronto Terror by James Barclay. If you want to really um, uh, learn about his, his history and, and life beyond golf, uh, that book does a wonderful job in sort of picking up all those details. It talks about his military service in there. I just don't remember anything like that. So it doesn't mean that's not the case. I just, I'm just i just not familiar enough to know. Speaking of books and titles in that case, uh, I'm intrigued, Ian. In every genius, there's a little madness. Where does the title come from? What does that, what does that spring from? Uh, I've got to give Jeff Cornish full credit for that because we were talking about um, one of our prime ministers was brilliant, but a little bit – was brilliant, um, an alcoholic, and uh, and quite a character. And we were talking about uh, um, how similar they were. And he was talking, about, and he was quite familiar with Johnny McDonald. And he was talking about him, and he made that comment. And I wrote it down at the time. Well, I did a number of interviews with him before he passed away, and I wrote that comment down because he was using it to describe the pair of them because he felt they were almost. Um, exactly the same type of person, sort of uh, somebody who's um, drew you in, um, somebody who you would kind of get on board with whatever they were saying. But they were, but he said they were also uh, a little bit uh, out there with some of their ideas as well. And uh, Stanley certainly, he blew a lot of money on these crazy ideas, um, uh, importing seed and, and investing in all these um, sort of experiments within golf. So uh, there, I've never been able to confirm it. I can confirm one bankruptcy, but um, I've always sort of got the idea that I think he went bankrupt more than probably about three or four times Wow! and just emerged and off he went again. Uh, he was horrible with money. He was just terrible with money. He was a bad businessman. And he was also terrible with everybody else's money, too. Um, what an endearing uh, characteristic he, that is. <laughs> he, he was not good at uh, – he would forget to pay the people working for him. And um, I remember when he formed the partnership with Trent Jones, it was only for the American work. He was really trying to fish Trent Jones for work. That was his idea of that link, was if Trent could find a, a bunch of American work, particularly the WPA work, then that would be good for him as a businessman. And then he brought his brother in and he made his brother uh, an equal partner with Trent and just split Trent's share so that those two had 25% and he had 50% because he never removed any part of his share, but he kept all his Canadian work under his Canadian business. And so Trent Jones saw none of that. And that's part of the reason why he left out of frustration. Not only was Stanley sometimes forgetting to pay or not able to pay, but also um, he was getting a pretty raw deal on on that arrangement. But that was pretty typical of Stan. He, uh, Jeff and, and others talked about um, he just wasn't great with money. He would give it away, but he would also ask to borrow it all the time. It just didn't really register with him, the business side of the business. 
And for a man who built a hundred golf courses and built 50 golf courses by the time he completed Banff Springs, he didn't have much to show. Robert Trent Jones was the junior partner, or it was Robert Trent Jones Sr., but he was the junior partner in that partnership with yes. Thompson, as I understand yeah. it. And, yeah, he uh, had, uh, Thompson had associates, so he also had Robbie Robinson and Jeff Cornish. Um, but it seemed like uh, the arrangement with uh, Trent Jones seemed to be a little bit more formal than the others. The others seemed to be working associates, whereas Trent was a partner. Yeah, it strikes me that Thompson's one of those architects whose place in history is as part of, you know, not only in creating great courses, but the influence that he's had upon so many architects that have gone on to create uh, their own their own style and, and have their own influence over many parts of the world. Uh, so he's, you know, he's known for these Canadian courses, but his influence extends far beyond that. So this is, I'm going to read you a quote from Jeff Cornish. And it happens to be on the back of the book. It says, if Stanley Thompson had been based in the United States or in the United Kingdom instead of Canada, he would have received a lot more international acclaim. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this great chain, isn't it? And Harry Colt's often underestimated in that same way, isn't he? And But there, there you have, you know, Harry Colt's influence at Toronto Golf Club may well have opened Thompson's eyes to great architecture. And, uh, and so it goes. Do you know if they ever met? Uh, Jeff and I did talk about that. Um, and, um, Jeff Cornish was quite sure that he had met Colt. Um, but I have nothing that confirms that, uh, Cornish did talk about the fact that they exchanged letters cause he had letters. Um, there were letters in the office that were from Colt. Um, he also talked about the fact that Stan and, and Charles Allison were very tight and they spent time together and they were very friendly that they, they liked each other a lot and, and working together had gone very well. And uh, Thompson would talk about um, uh, Colt's architecture, but also Allison as a person quite a bit, that he was he was very taken by Charles. It was quite the group of sort of sharing ideas at that time, that whole golden age, wasn't it? Most of those famous names that we know seem to know each other and not infrequently come together and discuss and talk about ideas and uh, – about golf course architecture and the ways forward. A little bit like we, we see a little bit of that today, don't we, Ian? There's a, a bit of a recreation of that. It's a more congenial – whilst they're all competing, there's a more congenial sort of – or or desire to learn amongst all those in the trade, it seems. Uh, there's much more effort lately. Um, um, people have realised that um, there is room for others and um, we're in an era right now where um, – we're more likely to go and see somebody else's work and spend time with them. Uh, Trent Jones really dominated sort of the fifties through to the eighties. Um, and he was super competitive. In fact, he, he kind of created the, the impact on the boys that they became super competitive, even with each other. And that's why they sort of had some family issues as well. Uh, but that competitiveness was, he, he froze out, um, uh, Dick Wilson and Joe Lee, and I'm trying to remember somebody else from the ASGCA. So you went through a period where ever, everybody was super hyper competitive because everybody kind of took a page off of Trent Jones on how to behave and how to run a business. And I think we're sort of back to an era where people are thinking sort of um, of more of a golden age approach where everybody was kind of learning from each other. 
I also think Pete Dye played a role in in sort of getting rid of some of that animosity as well, because he was a pretty cordial, friendly man. It's not quite collaboration, isn't it? Cordial is probably a good word, isn't it? Because uh, there's still that competition. There's not that much work around and everybody wants to get whatever work they can because we all need to eat. This touches on something that I was thinking about when you were mentioning where this all started for Thompson, that sort of 19 and, 19 and the Toronto Golf Club gets redone in this from a fairly rudimentary thing to something we would recognise today as as golf course architecture. What was the – and then it all changes from there. Is that demand driven by golfers, Ian? I'm intrigued to think – if we take today for an example, the fairly common refrain from a not insignificant number of golf fans to the issues we talk about with narrow golf courses, high rough to try and control scoring, a lot of us promote that width and angles are the answer, not narrow and high rough. There's a lot of pushback against that idea. Was there pushback against this idea of golf courses looking different to the rudimentary Victorian style that was there at the time, or was it embraced unlike what we see today? A lot of people will tell you the answer to professional golf is put bunkers at 350 yards that are super deep, super high rough, right up around the greens, tiny little greens, water hazards everywhere, and that'll make it hard for the pros. Was there that kind of prevailing attitude, or was it the opposite? No, it was embraced. Well, first of all, the game was just taking off, really. It was still um, uh, played by very few people, and then in the 20s, it just exploded in Canada. But in the teens, there was not a lot of people playing. And the game was quite hard in a lot of cases. A lot of uh, golf was was made to um, – it was like an obstacle course. It was um, uh, jumping over hazards and, and, and a lot of forced carries. And then what came through the 20s was a game where um, we got into um, sort of early strategies where there was a little bit more risk and reward in the design style. And the most important part of that was it, it, it began to accommodate the weaker players, which made it um, a more encouraging for uh, early golfers to um, want to play the game and, and to feel a little bit more comfortable with the game. So the form of architecture was... I would say early Canadian architecture, once we hit that 20s period, was uh, was encouraging rather than testing. And and I think that that period, I think golfers really enjoyed where it went. We didn't get stuff that was sort of super penal until the 60s for us, 60s and 70s, particularly in the 70s. It just really took off as an idea and really changed architecture to uh, horribly. And if you ask me, uh, 70s and 80s for us is a terrible period. We are asking you because that's one of the reasons uh, we got you on. So, what do you what do you think about this modern notion of? We'll come back to Thompson and, and some other stuff about him, but but what can we learn from history from that period that we can perhaps apply today? It feels to me like there's lessons to be learned from that golden age. Well, in in many ways, we've come full circle. We've uh, we're definitely heading towards something that's um, accommodating and fun over uh, difficult and testing. Um, you know, uh, every um, group of players could use one golf course or a couple of golf courses over sort of a period over a collection of a hundred that ask a lot from them, and that it lets a really good player identify their weaknesses or, or really understand where, where they are in their game. But the majority of golf really should be um, kind of fun and friendly and generally should be shorter and easier. And, uh, and that fits sort of what golf is, which is recreation. And um, 
And so I, I think that we've sort of returned to the idea that people in Canada in particular, people were driven away from the game because they just got frustrated. You know, as the trees grew in, as the rough grew higher, as the number of bunkers sort of increased and increased and through to about 205, people just finally went, this is kind of a crazy game. And and the next generation just, I remember that. I went through that with my kids. They just said, it's not actually that much fun. And it's funny. I thought about it after a while and I realized I played on something so much easier when I was a kid. But that's that's not really being offered. But all of a sudden, we're, we seem to come full circle right now where everybody's sort of uh, unwinding things and just making them much more accessible. And as you said, it's carry angles. It's width and carry angles. If you're good, then you're going to have to... Uh, that was Thompson's thing. If you're really good, then you've got to take on the trouble because you need to take on the trouble to get the angles to uh, take on uh, the green sites and, and you're trying to play for a score. But if you're not very good, he always looked at it that the player should always be able to play their way and tack their way around all the trouble, probably take an extra shot, never face a, a hazard, ideally, and then, you know, sort of try to make a putt to make that par or make that bogey. Um, he always just believed that uh, he always designed for what he called the dub. And the dub was the player that struggled with the game that he never took away with sort of the exception of maybe one hole or two holes over an 18 hole uh, uh, composition. He never took away the ability to run the ball onto the green, and he believed he should be accommodating the average player. And he believed he was designing for the average player, not for the elite. So the exception was St. George's, where he clearly designed that for the coming Canadian Open that happened there three years later. Well, that did work. You raise an interesting point there about hazards and and the placement of hazards. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. That there's there's some hazards that are that really get a workout, but they're not necessarily well-placed. It's just because they're where players hit a bad shot, like a short right of a green or something. It's very common miss for amateurs. And you put a bunker short right of a green, it's going to get a workout. But it's not necessarily of any real strategic value. Conversely, a bunker that plays an extremely important strategic role in a hole can often barely ever get any – can barely, barely ever sees a golfer in it because it's – it's so strongly determining the line of play um, that it's a very significant hazard, but not necessarily one that gets a lot of use. It's something that's really intrigued me. I've, uh, well, I've, al- I've always thought the ideal hazard uh, is one where uh, it's deep it's, it, it, and it, it's somewhere where you'd pay a price, but it's one where you've got – that's the ideal line. That's sort of um, the shortest – and uh, it's the ideal angle to come in for. So it's the ideal line. You know that going into playing the hole. You've got all the room in the world to play away from it. And you know that if you get in there, you're in trouble. And, and the ideal hazard is a dance. And that is you will play well away from it because you know the perils and you may not score. But over time, you'll learn to play closer and closer to it for the benefits. And essentially, it becomes a dance if you keep trying to play closer and closer till one day you knock it in there. When you knock it in there, usually you get into serious trouble, and that turns into maybe a bogey or a double bogey or even a triple bogey. And after sort of getting your head handed to you, the next time you stand on the tee, you hit it so far away from that hazard that you're, there's no way you're going to make a par or a birdie. And all you're trying to do is just get by that hole without being there. 
And then what do you do over the next period of a month? You play closer and closer and closer because you know you need to be there or you need to try carry it or you need to try slide by it or you need to play up to it. And the ideal hazard does that to you. It, it, it's a lifetime dance where you, you know it, you respect it, but you also you have to flirt with it. And if a bunker makes you flirt, that is a perfectly placed bunker. Uh, um, yeah, that, I think that expresses it perfectly. That, that sort of hazard, you're only in there, you know, once every month or every couple of months because you've you've flirted too close. But there's those other hazards that catch a bad shot, which I'm in all the time because I hit a lot of bad shots. And, uh, <laughs> but, me too. But to me, they're far less interesting, those hazards. It's just, it, it's just that victorian style penalty well they make the game harder without making it more interesting don't they adrian that's the problem exactly it's difficult but it's not actually interesting a 40 yard bunker shot is not all that that interesting initially when adrian outlined what he was talking about there with i thought of first of the road hole bunker but that doesn't quite fit that perfect line idea does it for the next shot over the bunker there at the road hole is not the ideal line is it and yet that bunker dictates almost everything about the play of that hole the only thing about the road hole that does fit that is um, a lot of us will have to play our third because it's really hard to get the ball down far enough to be comfortable to have a go because everything's so shallow. But that third shot, it's usually played along the ground. And because all the slopes right near it feed into it, you're trying to figure out how close can I go to that slope that feeds into it. And if I come up, if I'm a little weak, it's going to slide in there and it's just going to turn and it's going to go in. And if I'm a little strong, I take the chance of actually, in my case, pulling the ball in and hitting it through the back, which is a disaster. I'd rather be in the road hole bunker, frankly. Um, it, it's really interesting how it works. And the thing, and if you think about it, it was a par five. Yeah. It's a delicate, delicate third shot on a five. It, it actually is the ideal concept for a par five. And I'm always amazed that I've, I've seen a, a perfect copy of it at a Devereux Emmett course. Um, but I'm always amazed that very few people actually think about that as a conceptual end to a par five when you're creating a green site, because it it is a flawless idea. And it all has to do with those slopes in front. And again, because of where all the pins sit, for the most part, you have to flirt with that front slope. And the funny part is, if you're clever and you're confident, you can actually lose, use that slope to feed the ball around behind the road hole bunker. And I have done that successfully, and I have put one in the middle of the road hole bunker trying to play a bump and run. So, <laughs> the, the correct way to play it, of course, is you've got, you've got to play for that bit of rough that's near the car park of the hotel there, and then you can just come straight up the green from that rough. That's, that's, the, that's, I, the, sure way, that's the way to make a five. <laughs> fortunately, I have done that successfully. The very first time I played it, I was actually playing in a match, and um, I'd hit it. I'm a lefty. I'd hit a draw over the hotel. The, the, the caddy that was uh, had my opponent's bag said, I don't know about that one. It turned out it was in the right rough, gave me an angle through, and I had all of eight feet for birdie. And I turned to the, his caddy and I said, this is the one time where this is bigger than a match. Can you give me a little help with the read? And he turned to me and he went, you're playing in a match, not a effing chance. <laughs> did you make it? I did not. I didn't read it well. No, I made one. I had a birdie on the roll. Did I ever tell you about that? Remind me to tell you about that one day. It's, uh, it's an amazing story that you'll uh, you'll no doubt. Uh, you'll no doubt love. It's an intriguing hole, that 17th at St. Andrews. There's no reason, Ian, why you can't be both in the road hole bunker and over the back. 
you can either start from over the back and thin it into the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> or you, you can thin it out of the bunker over the back or shank it and then hit it over the back. So there's no reason why you can't have all of the goodness of the road hole in one. What are the holes that, as an architect, you look to and think about? Are they the same collection of holes that most architects think about? And most of us who think about architecture think about? The 6th at Royal Melbourne, and 17 at St Andrews, 14 at St Andrews. What are those influences for you and why? Uh, actually, you picked up uh, one of them with the six of uh, Royal Melbourne. The um, it's just an, a great expression of uh, the importance of angles and the opportunity to play safe or as dangerous as you like, and then how everything revolves. To me, that everything revolves around that front left bunker of just it's worth taking on the angle because you really don't want to have to try and come over that thing. Um, that, that's a good one. I, a lot of people. Uh, uh, turn to the Redan, um, and whichever version of the rant, because everybody seems to have a particular Redan that that moves the needle for them, and it's not necessarily the same one. Um, but the concept of the Redan, I think, is just one of the most marvelous concepts, because you can either try to cut it into it and stick the ball in there, or you can play a draw and try to run the ball into the position you want. So it's one of the few concepts that actually adapts to both flights from either side. But it also rewards two completely different playing ideas. And um, so I've always been a, a huge fan of that. I find I'm really influenced by uh, things that I've seen that are unusual. And um, I, I, I like the ideas like um, uh, Thompson did the 13th at Highland Links, and it's got a, an enormous hill right in front of the green. And you can play up top um, to a plateau, which gives you visibility. You can play down below and try to use the valley, but the hill will run the ball into the bunker on the left if you're not careful trying to play a runner on the approach because it's such a long four. It's hard to fly the ball all the way there, and it's kind of semi-blind in the, into the bowl, into the back. So the easiest and smartest play is the mound, but you have to judge the mound, and depending on whether you're left, depending on whether you're right, depends on how do you what part of the mound you want to hit. And I kind of find I'm always trying to look for uses of the land by other architects, whether it's Thompson, um, uh, Corin Crenshaw's fourth at uh, Abandoned Trails, where the ridge, you have to sort of make some judgment, use the ground. Anything that uses the ground really gets me excited. Or um, an all-or-nothing decision like the fourth at Barnboogle Dens, where you... Uh, have to make a decision on is it passive in pitch or boy, it looks like I can make that carry. I love stuff like that. It, it reminds me of the 10th at Riviera where you know what the right thing to do is, but you're compelled to not do the right thing and take the big risk. And I love that with the golf hole that it, when a golf hole sort of talks you out of the intelligent thoughts that you have in your brain. Those holes to me are special, and I try to emulate those, and I try to borrow the ideas and bring those. So I've always tried to do short holes, that, whether it's a, a borrow from the 10th of Riviera or the 4th of Barnbuckle Dunes. Uh, that one relies on topography a little bit better, um, but I try to draw from those. I happen to be a fan. I believe every course should have a couple of short fours and one really short three because those are the holes that are the most fun to play for every level of player. you got both there, Barnbuckle, on your four and seven. A great short four and a great three. I, I, I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know, Adrian. I wasn't going to mention that. I cut you off there. You were about to give, about to say something. Uh, well, Ian, Ian was hitting on all of – like I encourage everybody, we'll have to put a link in the show notes to Ian's 
blog. It, I, I call it a blog, but it's more a set. Well, it's it's actually labelled as a series of essays without dates because they're very timeless pieces. And you hit on a few of uh, your favourites there: the the short par three and and the Redan. I just wanted to ask about something with the the Redan at North Berwick, and it's something it's not repeated at any other Redan that I've seen is is the the concept of North Berwick where you're actually hitting basically a blind shot over these two bunkers and a big mound. And uh, you've kind of, the whole challenge is picking your line over those bunkers and the shape of shot you're going to hit over those bunkers. And then you don't really find the result until you get up over this hill and then you can see what's happened. It, that's, uh, it seems odd to me that that's a feature of that hole that has, is just not repeated anywhere else with the Redan. If you think about it, uh, the, the Redan's really made a comeback in the last little while, um, which is jarring to me. Like, there are lots of early ones when you, particularly Flynn was really good at them. Um, but we all tend to, um, I love the sense of discovery. It's like, uh, for me, uh, Presswick's one of my favorite places to play. And, and I love the idea of throwing the ball over the top of the dunes and discovering what happens on the other end. But I do know I sit in the really, really small minority on that end. And I think, and, and I think anybody who's seen the national golf links of America's Redan, where you can see the ball land and you can see the ball go, it's a little bit blindish in a couple of spots, but you can see most of it. Being able to see what happens once the ball finds the ground is a little bit more appealing to 99% of the players because <laughs> you find out what happens and you're also able to learn by sight. Whereas the one at Barrick, I happen to love the one at Barrick, but you throw it over the top of the hill and then you discover where you are. And, and and all of the conversation on the as you're going up the hill there, it's like, oh, you know, how, how do you think your one worked out? How do you think your one worked out? And then you end up sort of jogging to the top of that hill to to find out what happened. It's well, and the funniest part about it is that's not you, that's me. That's the first thing you hear out of three out of the four players. <laughs> yes. Everybody's fighting for the same ball that they believe they've hit that, and I'm not the one. I'm not in the bunker. There's no way I got in the bunker, and you just you know everybody. And then if, the the best part about it is because usually you've got a little bit of a game going for you know just a beer, but everybody's um, looking and the, the reveal is, okay, who's good? Who's going to probably win the hole and who's probably going to take one hole from the match? And uh, it, it's sure fun to discover you're on top of that. Uh, whereas everything's sort of given on the tee for most places. I happen to like one called the uh, one at Mountain Lake. And the one thing about that is it's so visual because it's downhill and the kicker slope's so big that once the ball hits, the fun of it's just watching how far it goes. But everything, it's like it's like you get to watch you get to watch the whole movie. Whereas I I kind of like the idea of uh, the mystery of walking up for two hundred yards, waiting to find out what what actually happened. Well, I, I think you get the the thrill on when you're standing on the sixteenth tee at, at North Berry. You get to see the group behind and how their balls land on the green and. Uh, that and then you, if you if you're there long enough, you get to see their reaction as well when they come over the hill, which is a lot of fun. What, what did you see over there, Lane? Wasn't there some? Oh yeah, some. <laughs> the, there was this young American bloke in the group behind me, who's he, he's a good golfer, a really good golfer, and he was hitting these towering drives all day, and he hit like this colossal eight iron way up in the air, and it's pitched next to the next to the pin, and 
um, rolled back all the way off the green, almost to the – there's a stone fence there that you hit over off the 16th. Um, wow. Which is a good 10 metres behind the green or something. It just took a massive bounce and, and off it went. And he came over the hill and he's like, well, oh, where's my ball? I hit a superb shot. <laughs> and <laughs> and it, as I, I, I pointed at his pitch, mate, and he goes, oh, you landed there. And he goes, well, where is it? And it's like <laughs> over near the wall. And he's like, oh, what's going on? This, this isn't right. <laughs> I, I hit a great shot. <laughs> well, and that's the discovery of golf in Scotland, isn't it, Ian? That, it, that's frustrating to everybody who goes there for the first time whose experience of golf is from outside. But once you've come to understand that, that's when the real joys of golf in Scotland and the ground game and the things that a lot of people talk about uh, being the joy of it, that's how it reveals itself, isn't it? That's how you sort of learn it. Agreed. And I tend to, whenever people ask me for advice on uh, trips to Scotland, for example, I say they're going to play Troon and um, and Prestwick on that side. And I always try to encourage them. I like Western Gales a lot, but I always try to encourage them to play there are some courses where you do see better than others, and I always try to encourage them to play around on one of those because you get a lot of the ground game ideas. You get the idea that the greens are not necessarily going to go in directions you expect them to. Mm-hmm. That sort of starts to reveal itself. But if you, you know, if you set, if you send somebody to Royal County Down as their first game in the UK, the amount of blind shots that you have to hit in that round will will leave you sort of. Um, wondering why you even made a trip over. And yet, for me, Royal County Down happens to be my favorite golf course in the world. You have to just sort of embrace the spirit of there's the stake or there's the rock, and I'm just going to have a nice swing at it. The one thing I discovered over time is I love blind shots because if I don't see where I'm going, I seem to hit the ball straight. (laughs) You don't find the trouble. uh, I don't, and I can't explain that, but it seems to work for me. As I think this is how the learning process unfolds for that Scotland thing. This is how it did for me. That infuriating bounce that Adrian's just described for that young bloke who probably plays of a very low handicap and has hit a fabulous shot from his world and been punished for it, at some point will hit a so-so shot that gets the that has the opposite effect and kicks off a mound, bounces to the left, picks up a slope, moves to the right, runs down to a couple of feet, and then you suddenly start to get it that a, the bounces all even out, and B, the bounces are actually what makes the game interesting. Let's start looking for those instead of the aerial route to the hole. That's the education, I think, Ian. The, the ground game used to be everything. If you think about it in the past, the um, I'm back to playing with hickories, so, uh, or I'm not back to playing hickories. I'm playing with hickories. Left-handed. Um, are they, they'd be yes, fine with that. Yes, that took, that took a bit of effort. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that was interesting was I – played a bunch of courses around Pinehurst in January and you have to judge everything on where are you going to land it? Fortunately, those courses really suit the game, but you judge everything on where am I going to land and how is it going to run out? And it includes chipping. Um, You're not hitting these big flop shots because you don't have the clubs to do it. So everything becomes about um, finding the, the land to use, finding the slopes, but sometimes it comes not taking the obvious route that's really delicate and dangerous, but understanding that there are other things you can do. And there's um, a a running slope that it may not, it's may not be a direct line, but it's going to be a long fee, but it's going to take all the risk of the ball running off the, off the drooping edges. And 
the one thing I loved about that was I found it got me more in tune with playing. I got a lot more engaged in what I was doing. And I, I found the round, I didn't need to be well rewarded. I just found it rewarding to play. And, and I don't think I've been this excited about playing golf in 20 years. And it's just fun. It's extraordinary, isn't it? This, there's a little bit of a movement of that, isn't there? People are starting to rediscover the notion in particular. And it is that playing golf on the ground where the target is often not even close to the final destination. Uh, it's just the interim. And, and there's as much satisfaction in hitting that as there is in hitting a high six iron or eight iron that splats onto a green. So, I mean, in fact, more enduring, uh, I think, uh, as, as you've just described. Just back to the blind shot for a moment. At Presswick there, you mentioned the 17th hole there, the Alps. Uh, I played there in 97 with my good mate BJ, who's the editor of Golf Australia magazine. And that is complete. For those who don't know, you sort of drive to the bottom of this massive sand dune. You've got no idea what's going on over it. The caddy hands you a club. He says, you know, this is the yardage, this is the club to hit. And then when you hit it, he counts the airtime. Caddy's counting one, two, three, four. And then he eventually says, I think that'll be okay. Or that's close. Or yeah. the way that made it. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, What's he talking about? And then, of course, you top the rise of the hill, and there is this cavernous, brutal oh, yeah. pit of sand <laughs> short of the green. It's, it's eight feet deep, and and they're counting. They know the hang time required to carry that and stay on the green. It's truly bizarre. You can't encounter that anywhere else in golf, I don't think, Ian, that kind of thing. And you have a million of those kinds of experiences in Scotland, don't you? Yes, and, and the again, it's the excitement of, what was the result? But once you've played those holes, you're actually pretty comfortable with them. Mm-hmm. That, that's the thing. I always love that uh, that saying that uh, holes only blind once. So you may be hitting over a feature, but after a while, you have full understanding of how that's going to work out. And I'm kind of into the sportier version of golf. Um, I went to play a just sort of a touch on something else similar. I went to play a course called Fraserborough, which is in the northeast of Scotland. It would be you're getting up towards Dornoch. You're you're uh, it's above Cruden Bay. It's well well beyond St Andrews, going up that northeast coast. And the thirteenth hole there, play there, the green set into a bowl, but because it's such a steep green, you can't hit the green because anything other than the very front, which is this narrow little space uh, it's going to hit it and it's going to slide all the way back out the front again and the way to play it is you have to play a runner even from 150 out and you've got two dunes on the front side and you can use these dunes like they're 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 grassed over they're cut short and you can use them to essentially slide the ball in between and if you can do it you can get a result out of that but it's the only way you can actually play that approach and i probably hit about 35 to 40 balls before my playing partner finally talked. We were playing in a high wind, so there was nobody in the golf course, but my playing partner finally talked me into continuing on. <laughs> but I just wanted to see how many different ways you could play this. You probably only look like a lunatic after about the 20th ball. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Everybody could under- we could all understand the first 20, but come on, Ian, this is now starting to become a bit of <laughs> well, a to give We were lunatics because it was we were playing our second 18. The wind was so strong that we actually picked up and walked the holes into the wind because we could not hit the ball wow. <laughs> beyond about 50 or 60 feet, even with a running hook. Wow. Yeah. It just wouldn't go anywhere. But I remember one of the holes, um, I hit a nine iron or a wedge it was just like a 200 yard par three and it still ended up bouncing off the back of the green and going long 
it was just that sort of a win. But fortunately, this hole was crosswind, so you just wanted to play ground game. But we had a lot of fun. There was nobody out there. They wouldn't take our money because they didn't think anybody in their right mind should play. <laughs> so they turned the, they turned down the green fee. For Scott not to take money, Ian, that's telling about just how nuts you must be. Uh, they're not they're not known for. Oh, it. she she said you'll be back for a beer within two to three holes, <laughs> and we just said okay. There's, a, there's a, a strength of wind you get in Scotland, which I think Tom Coyne described as the type of wind that makes your, your eyes bleed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he's, uh, he's absolutely right. All of this, of course, we'll come back to Thompson shortly. I want to know why in particular he's grabbed your fancy. Two books is a fair interest in an individual. But just before that, and I know this is something we talk for some people's taste too much about on this show, but the relationship between and the changing relationship between the equipment used to play the game, particularly at the elite level, and course architecture. That seems to be the nexus of all of these issues and irritations about the place where the game finds itself. At the elite level, the aerial game is well and truly taken over, but it's changed the nature of the game, has it not, Ian, and not necessarily for the better, according to many of us. Well, it's made it kind of one-dimensional because the um – you know, you give good players a chance to um, – well, if you give smart people a chance to solve a riddle and they can find a, a solution that mathematically works better than other solutions, which essentially is what bomb and gouge is, they figure it out. If you hit it as far as you can, whether you're in the fairway or in the rough, you're going to score lower overall. Once It's like shooting all these three-point shots in basketball. Once people figure out uh, – a way to um, balance the odds in their favor. They're going to play to that strength. And the problem is the equipment plays into that. So I grew up watching one of my favorite players of all time is Nick Price. I grew up watching Nick Price succeed over other players because he could move the ball both right and left at will and had the ability to use some of that skill as well to deal with wind and it, it, it allowed his skills to equal um, while he was short it allowed his skills to compete um, on par with other people who are longer and stronger. And I think what's happened is technology has just given such an obvious advantage to people who are well-conditioned, um, have worked really hard on their games and have developed length and strength. And so what we see is that group now is the sole group that really succeeds. And I find as somebody who watches golf, or actually to be very, very frank, somebody who doesn't watch golf anymore, (laughs) I find that it's just not that interesting that even in the majors, if if that game is succeeding in, in one of the major tournaments, I'm gone. I'm not watching. It's why I'm down to really the British Open. Um I should call it the Open because that's really what the name is. Uh, the U.S. Open, depending on which venue it is. Um, I love the Ryder Cup when they played it in Australia at Royal Melbourne. Um, it, you know, there are places where it works, but I find the rest of it, I have zero interest in watching it because it's, it's first of all, it's one-dimensional. And the other end of it is it's actually not even an interesting one-dimensional golf to watch. I think- it's like a computer game. That's the yes, yes. The, the takeaway I always get for, it, especially when it's played on these hyper green uh, environments with, you know, defined fairways, and it's all well. Oh, grassing lines is another one of your articles I should should mention there. But the um, it, it all just looks so homogenized. Um, 
I, I think that's but it, that's exactly what they're going for. They they want it to look like the same course every week. Yeah, and that's my frustration that if um, I've always thought we're going in the wrong direction. I always thought if you really want to mix up the results, um, it's like tiger proofing. It was it wasn't. It was it was tiger enabling. If you really want to mix up the results, play short. Like slow like greens. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't 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 change technology. Just um, live with the. You know what? Lowest number wins. So it doesn't really matter what the par is. It doesn't really matter what the length is. But go sixty four hundred. See what happens. I actually think it'd be it'd be crazy to watch in some ways. But hell, at least the short players for their skill will be allowed to compete. Because you've really once you get down to a certain distance short, you've taken away the advantage of the long player. They really don't have an advantage anymore. Because everybody now can compete. Is that right, they, Ian? They are succeeding because... Do we want Sorry? that? Is, is this all a strategy to get Mike Weir's card back? Just- <laughs> take, take it easy. He's a member of the European Tour. He can play whenever he wants because he's a major winner. Oh, that's great. Is, is that what we want, Ian? Do we want long hitting to not be rewarded? That that seems no, a... No, we, we, we want a shorter ball because if we... And I'll give you a completely different reason why we need a shorter ball. But we want a shorter ball because it, what it'll do is it, it'll require players to play uh, the clubs that were being played in the past. That's the biggest difference. The biggest takeaway from me is, while golf courses was, were able over the 100 years or so to, to expand to meet technology, our biggest problem is most of our uh, venues cannot expand to meet technology anymore. And so what's happened is technology is just overcoming uh, the really great venues in golf. Now, my argument is I think those really great venues should just refuse to host. I think at a certain point that pushes the issue as well. But, you know, they keep tinkering with St. Andrews trying to make it relevant, whereas technology, they've allowed technology to make it not so relevant. But I I would like to see a shorter ball uh, and a dramatically shorter ball. Part of the reason is... I don't think we can afford to go where we're going. I don't think we're the land's available. I actually think the, I don't think there's another building, unless we get our heads around the smaller golf courses. I actually think the last building, the last construction boom was the final one. I honestly believe golf will be, um, because there's a finite amount of land and a finite amount of resources, but we're still increasing in population. Golf is just going to run out of space. It's going to economically run out of the ability to survive because it's on too large a landscape. And the only way to survive, the only way for the long term for golf to exist in the greater scheme of things 100 years out is we need to actually reduce the space that we use. And if we don't get our heads around that, then golf just becomes a niche sport for those who can afford to play it. Because economics is just going to essentially, over time, drive the average person away from the game because golf is just going to getting more increasingly expensive um, if the um, envelope continues to increase. The, the best way I explained it to somebody a while back was I started in 1989. The safety standard that I have to use, my understanding of safety, because nobody actually does that because there's too much liability, there's no organization. I'm at 50% wider than I was in separating holes. And that is all of I'm trying to do the math. That's 30 years essentially. And that 50%. Wow. 
that and holes from boundaries of of houses and stuff as well. Yes, I, there was a year where uh, the year I lost it. The uh, best way to put it is the year I lost it was the year I discovered I would I had spent more money in construction on trying to deal with safety issues than I did with trying to create strategy. Interesting golf. And it was the year where I finally said, you know what? F this. I've had enough of this. I'm going to speak up. I it was when I approached um uh my organization that I used to belong to, the ASGCA, and asked them about um should we not be tackling this subject? And that's when I discovered not only did they not want to tackle this subject, but there were enough I I my impression was there are enough people who had a interest in the ball going further and and big name venues changing um to accommodate that. Uh this is going back in the past, so it's it's not as current a, a, a group that's dealing with that now. It's the it's the group before. But I, I just I also think they didn't want to upset the apple cart and then have the USGA mad at them. But um uh, I'm just I'm really frustrated with where where we've got to. I'm frustrated with what we've done to our special places, and that's why somebody like me has turned to Hickory's. Um, it's like rediscovering the architecture. I've, we've got a Canadian open site here that was built um, by Herbert Strong, which is brilliant. When you play it with Hickory's and can't hit it far enough, now all of a sudden you get the same landing areas that they played to, and now you face the same clubs in. And all of a sudden, those shots into those greens are amazing to try and hit. And it's such a great experience played with different equipment and different technology because all of a sudden you get to understand what was so great about that golf course. And I had a whole deeper respect for it because I was now playing shots that I was less comfortable with, but understanding what Herbert was trying to ask me to do or or challenge me to make a decision on. It also gives you a, a far greater respect for the players of the era, and you see the number oh. they shot. Given the not just I mean the clubs are rudimentary enough, but the ball they used was literally appalling <laughs> in terms of what we're used to today. So you can only have a whole new level of respect. It strikes me, Ian, you're one of the few in the industry, not just in architecture, in any part of the industry. For the most part, I think probably for pragmatic political reasons, we focus on the elite game and the professional game as as being the real nub of the problem for this distance issue. And there's some truth in that and the elite game, but you're one who brings it right back and you've, you've illustrated it beautifully with what you just talked about there. Suburban golf courses, members courses, courses we're familiar with that we play needing to be 50% wider to accommodate amateur golf. You're one of the few who talks about that. Tease that out for me uh, and try to help people to understand that the impact isn't just Rory McIlroy hitting at 350. There's more to it than that. Well, in general, I actually don't give a crap about what the professional game does. I, I Lowest score wins, so why should we really care? It's like um, I don't understand why we're not down to par 68 or par 67 for them at this point as well. Like, let, let's just – let's just rather than rebuilding stuff – what it is, yeah. Yeah. All of those rather than, rebuilding, rather than rebuilding stuff, let's just – Let's just call it what it is, and then we'll stop rebuilding things, and we'll stop wasting money, and we'll stop wrecking classic architecture. Um, my issue is the fact that um, almost every golf course I work with, because I, I work with stuff essentially from 1900 through to about 1940 is the vast majority of my clients. Almost every one of them are in the, in the city. And um, it's the housing. It's the adjacent roads. 
I have two golf courses with schools. Um, it's the adjacent um, people who are at risk because the ball goes too far sideways. And that's one of the problems that um, I've found particularly frustrating over the, over recent time is, um, you know, yes, the ball's not moving as fast as technology and, and fitness and everything else, but the problem is the worst ball hit by the worst player who hits the ball the farthest is actually the, is, becomes the level of the problem. Because if they find a, a, a child in a school playground or they find somebody's house or somebody's backyard or, and in the case of uh, one of the courses I work at, um, a windshield that caused an accident with two cars going in opposite directions. Um, these are the problems that we face if, if we're dealing with inner city golf courses. And the part that frustrates me is, um, you know, a lot of those are private clubs, but a lot of them are public. And I'm running into some situations where they're looking at their liability and they're looking very seriously at the fact that they're not making as much money from public golf. Uh, society would, uh, or society, um, people who are non-golfers within cities look at those spaces and think those large spaces should be park. And so there's a lot of pressure politically to take something like that where, once you get an incident, they start looking at the idea, well, maybe the public golf course should go. And for me, that's so frustrating because essentially those public golf courses are kids and seniors. It's not the 40-year-old male. It, it's it, who we all seem to point fingers at with disdain. It's actually largely kids and it's largely people who are retired um, who get the 50,000, 60,000 rounds through on those places. They need that exercise. Both Both groups need it really badly. And it's every bit as important as a hockey arena or a baseball um, field or a soccer field. It, it plays a role in, in a fitter society. And frankly, uh, that's another thing. I think we, we should be selling golf for um, health. I, I, I just I can't fathom why we Canadians do not defend ourselves by saying this is this is about fitness and health and 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 turning it around and saying these are the benefits rather than trying to uh, defend the game against people who are pushing the whole economic side of it. Isn't golf its own worst enemy in this department, though, Ian? Because the typical picture of golf that even us golfers see is people in carts for a start. That's what we promote. So there's no health benefit to that. We know that's not necessarily a majority and it's not the image we want, but it's what we allow. But in a lot of ways, the internal discussions that we have, we can't agree in golf that we are really in a car that's heading for a cliff. Decisions about golf courses in the not-too-distant future will be taken out of the hands of golf administrators and they will go to people who are not in golf. And you're exactly right. They will say, look, here's the litany of reasons why this golf course is a problem. We're closing it. And you don't get a say in it as golf. When does when will golf wake up and realise if we don't address these problems internally – the solutions will be forced from outside and they'll be much less palatable than anything that, that's been suggested from within the game. Well, we I would say the superintendents are, are um, way ahead of everybody else. Uh, they've there's some some of us as well within golf circles have been pushing um, uh, sort of a forward-thinking idea. Funny enough, it's based on Australian golf, so you guys can pat yourselves on the back because you do everything right. 
It's the <laughs> not, it's, not quite, but we're seen to, and that's nice. Ian. Yeah. It's important that our images that we do it right in Australia, even though we really don't, well, we do it just like everyone else. The, the, the game emerged from emerged to or it it went to Australia and went to Canada at the same time, and we came up with a version of golf that's all surrounded by trees and thick rough. You guys came up with a game that. It, um, keeps native um, species, keeps native materials, it is a little bit more open. Uh, you also um, allowed more flexibility in your playing style. I, I do think we're going to go that way. That's part of improving the game here. But the biggest thing for us is um, we're starting to see a, a push towards uh, less inputs, and that's um, less water, less fertility, less um, herbicides and pesticides, and essentially trying to get the game back to minimums. And the other end of it is, uh, I think we're also seeing, um, you know, that's sustainability, but I've always argued that economic sustainability is our only answer going forward. And that we're starting to see the move and we're really going to see it coming off of what's going on right now. Um, I've been asked to address that at Cornell. I'm doing a webinar for them in the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be about how can we get away with less Part of that's economically, um, you know, how do we reduce the maintenance? We can't get the people to, to work in maintenance anymore in North America because uh, there's enough jobs around at the moment, um, but the, the pay is not high enough and golfers are not willing to pay enough for, for, uh, to keep their employees. They think they're disposable. And so we've got a, we've got a sort of an economic suicide going on here a little bit as well. And, and there's sort of the superintendents are leading this more so, and and I'm trying to push that on my end. But I think we you only need about 30 bunkers for strategy. It's it. I mean, Augusta proved that in its in its origins. But there's great examples around golf. Um, the rest of it's eye candy. But for the great places, they should have more bunkers. They should be a little bit more interesting. But for the rest of golf courses, it's time to get things back to sort of um, bare bones. You don't need a lot, and you can get an awful lot. And this comes back to um, Adrian mentioned about short grass. The easiest way to make things challenging, to make things interesting, to make things playable, man, that covers all three major bases, is mow more. Uh, the more fairways you got, you don't have to overly maintain them, but the more short grass you've got, the less bunkers you've got, funny enough, it makes it harder, it makes it easier. It makes it harder for the elite player. It makes it easier for the average player. But it also um, provides flexibility and space, and it encourages the average player. So hopefully that's sort of where we're going, a little more green contour, a little more ground contour around greens, and a hell of a lot less bunkering and, and a lot less rough and a lot less trees and, and just get the game back to sort of its origins, and then the game's good again. There's an interesting anecdote from these these current times. We live in these interesting times. Um, a lot of courses obviously have need to immediately look at how they can reduce costs. And uh, at the club where I play, there's actually a new superintendent has just, just got on the job just before the shutdown occurred. Uh, but one of the first things he did was, all oh, right, okay, well, we've got, to, we've got to look at how we can maintain the turf a lot uh, more economically and uh, he went immediately mowed down all the rough, changed a lot of the mowing lines as well, put put a bit more short grass in around the greens and, and certain places where it had been intruding into the line of play. 
and uh, and he also let the fairway uh, grass grow a tiny bit longer. And oh, the rationale super. there, and, and and you can see the whole place is is a lot more relaxed. Like the turf isn't as stressed. The ball actually sits up great. It's a kaikuyu course, and kaikuyu just at the right length. The the ball sits up beautifully. It's still like kept down with the primo and all that the, the stuff that they use to to keep it reasonably fine bladed and like and sparse. But the whole place is just so much more relaxed. Like getting rid of those tightly defined graduated rough. That it, it's it's surprising what stress that that creates in the golfer and when you take it away you realize it, it, there's a real release to it you can just sort of roam around the fairways and uh and everything's much more chill and relaxed and you can and you can sense that the course is sort of uh recovering as well from from being overstressed do you mean the course is more relaxed or the members but what's been the response both. like the, the mem- course i honestly feel like looking at that that the fairway grass in particular, which is just a tiny bit longer, the uh, you, you can sense that 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 turf isn't stressed, so you don't get these little spots where it, it gets bare and or where um, I don't know, it just doesn't feel all like bikini waxed, and and then running into like graduated rough. The, that whole scene is is got this very artificial feel about it, and it's it's very stressful. But now you sort of look out across this reasonably uniform height uh, from tree line to tree line and you sense that there's more width. The, the place feels a lot more open, even though there's there's still trees either side of this reasonably narrow playing corridor. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a much more relaxing experience. It's fan- fantastic stuff. Ian, you touched on some financial issues, and they're all true inputs and those sorts of things. Doesn't doesn't golf have to confront the moral issue of water as well? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That is a moral issue. Yes. Um, well, it's like uh, I did something um, jokingly. I was asked to write a piece on the future of golf for Met Golfer, which is a New York um, City and area, metropolitan New York City area golf magazine. And so I've got a sense of humor and I like to write. And I sent him this dystopian view where they ran out of water and, and they started closing golf courses uh, throughout the southwest of the U.S. And then sort of talked about how golf started to disappear. Because I was supposed to give my view of what happened to golf or what would be happening with golf in 2040. And I sent it as a joke. Um, I, I know the editor, but I just sent it through because I've, I every once in a while get in these little divergences and wrote it. And he sent it back to me because I, I had already started and I was going to email him the next piece, but I got it back really quickly from him. And he said, you're scaring the crap out of me, but this is a perfect. <laughs> but he said, this is a, an amazing opening. And so we kind of crafted a piece together where it started with that and then it drifted into the, the real piece and making the point about um, less inputs and everything and where golf is going. And then I even used the fact that Ontario, you can't spray anything without making note of it and then you have to submit it to a body a um it's not a government body it's actually a um it's a college it's like a university um where they assess all the and to and from that they agree that you can continue to spray the next year or they can just tell you you're done um they have that power over golf um 
uh, part of it's because golf's on an exemption. We can't actually spray lawns. We can't with anything. So, um, but I was explaining to them the basis of, um, I live in a community where water is cut off on a regular basis. Um, and so golf has learned to live without less and less water. Uh, and so uh, we talked about that for a while, but I, I do think access to water um, I'd made the comment at one of the conferences that I went to. I said, the one thing people have not yet figured out is water is the new oil. Water is the most significant commodity. It's just we're not there yet. But at some point, it is going to become a commodity and golf is going to be absolutely jarred by what happens with that. I think you guys face that a little bit, don't you? That access to water is not a given in yeah, Melbourne in particular? Yeah, a lot of courses have to buy water um, yeah. from from the council because um, their own water supply. But that'll stop being that will stop being an option at some point. I mean, you're not going to be able to buy water to put on a golf course once water is under so much stress that people need it to drink. It'll become prohibitively expensive at the very least. Like it already costs tens of thousands of dollars to to patch up a course. With I have a I have an unnamed to. club I work with that spends one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year on water. Yeah. Jesus. Here's the question, Ian, for golfers. Will golf be worse with less water? I feel like the, the water issue is tied up 100% with this obsession with conditioning that is absolutely rife throughout the game where, unfortunately, I suspect the majority of golfers would rather play a well-conditioned golf course than a great golf course. Well, isn't it your Claude Crockford who said it's not how it looks, it's how it rolls? Might have been. He said a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So he could have said that. Um, it, it, if it, it, it the, the, they call it the British, here they call it the British approach. And um, it, it's essentially what I started with my presentations. We ended up in that dialogue because I, I, I talk quite a bit at the Canadian conferences. And um, the idea of the British approach is it's minimum inputs. And what you're doing is you're also promoting the grass that will survive. Um, in our case, you want bent grass. Uh, it's a, a cool season northern grass. Um, but if it's treated, um, uh, I was going to say miserably, but it's not. If you just really don't water it and you really don't fertilize it and you leave it to survive for the most part with little supplements, it actually turns into a stronger, better playing surface. And it, the more you let it be, the stronger and healthier it gets. That's sort of fescue in the UK. Um, so we just have to go down that road. So there's two ways to do it, because I've worked with a club that's gone forward thinking on this. And what they did was they actually just regrassed. And so you can you convert everything out, you regrass, and then you turn your water off. And now you've got a new stand of grass that you grow in, you establish long roots. And a lot of clubs are doing that here who have money. Um, which is interesting because they have money, but they're actually looking at something that will save them a lot of money. Uh, the other way of doing it is you just wean your grass off and you allow Darwin to do a lot of work. So you have death. As a friend of mine who's got, who when he retired at the best fairways I've ever seen on the least budget that I knew of in Ontario, used to say death is a gift. And he would say that to the members every time they'd say you've lost grass again, he'd say death is a gift. Now we're going to have bent grass in those areas. And over 12 years, he managed to convert the place completely to bent grass. Uh, he, he never had to increase his budgets, and he stopped spraying. 
and he just started spending his money on other things. And he reduced his fertilizer and everything else. So by the time he retired, he was putting down 50% of what anybody was putting down. Like, go to find the people who are the most efficient, and he was way below them. But that's where golf's got to go, and it will. There's a quick way, and there's a long, hard, drawn-out way. And old white males don't like the long, drawn-out way very much because they like their green grass. But I find the ladies, and even the, particularly the older ladies, when explained, are fine. I find the 30-somethings and the 40-somethings that are fit, and they're not smoking a cigar and drinking a beer on the cart, are into it. And I find the young generation that's coming is definitely all in. So we'll get there. It's just um, the generation I'm part of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> we're all, unfortunately, we're all part of it. But I wonder – and I've, I've never found any sort of an answer to this. And part of the reason we started the State of the Game podcast, one of the reasons we do this podcast and, you know, what I always try to do when I write stuff, I, I'm lucky I get to do a column every week for one of the local magazines down here for their website. Educating people about stuff they don't want to hear might be the most difficult thing in the world, might it not, Ian? You can argue all the, the right cases to you blue in the face, including the golf itself will be better and more entertaining. But there's a real resistance Maybe it's inbuilt uh, to a certain generation. I think one of the things I think one of the things is um, so I pitch this everywhere I work, whether it's a, a, a very um, incredible high end place like St George's or a Huntington down in New York City, or smaller clubs I work with. I actually pitch this future forward look at things. Um, I really truly believe in. Uh, it's worth the effort, and I also believe we put clubs in better places. I think we actually – my argument's always been I'm going to take you to a place where you're going to spend more money to get a better result. So we've just kind of got to go through this path together and message it out to the members. But I believe that it, architects have to take responsibility on this, and we have to pitch this um, because I think it's tough for superintendents because they get accused of um, being selfish wrongfully accused of being selfish, of, of pushing an agenda to suit themselves when it's not. Um, I always try to remind people, lean and fast and firm and everything else doesn't mean it's easier. It, it, it's just different. But it, it also, there's a layer of stress for the superintendents to try and go that way too. Um, but they're always under stress, unfortunately. It's one of the cruel things about golf. Um but I do think that we as leaders should be the ones pitching it. I think if you work with a club, I get to leave. And usually they give me the benefit of the doubt because I'm not there all the time. Whether it's the pro, the GM, or the superintendent, they're there day to day with them. They don't get the same latitude. So that's why I believe we as architects have a responsibility. Yeah, it's well, yeah, there's a let, let's hope that. You've given me a bit of hope there. That's a bit more optimistic than a lot of people you talk to in golf, and certainly my own interaction with golfers. I'm glad to hear, actually, Adrian, what you're saying about the membership there at your club, yeah. sort of embracing well, the, this better look. That's really encouraging, isn't it? It is really encouraging, and, and same same goes for the uh, the rakes not being in the bunkers. Everybody's like, oh, okay, that, that seems to be fine. We're not, you know, and you get in and out of the bunkers a lot quicker. It's it's all a lot less stressful. Well, but, um, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I, I think um, – I actually think what we're going through, um, you know, I, I've, I feel for everybody who's going through this, particularly people who are in a, a tougher spot 
than than some of us are. Um, I do think golf's going to move. I, I don't think the top end of golf's going to move, but I think the middle, sort of the 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 middle, is going to move dramatically. And I I, I think I think this is going to be one of those weird game changers where I think everybody's going to like two hundred eight two hundred nine for me. I noticed how many people wanted to talk about economic sustainability as one of the things they wanted in their golf course master plan. I think I think, I think and I think this is going to be a major thing for mid I like to call them mid-tier clubs. They're solid clubs um, and they can kind of go different ways. They can kind of try to overspend and overcompete or they can just know what they are, be what they are and succeed. And I think you're going to have a lot of conversations about uh, like Adrian's club. They're just going to make intelligent decisions that are are thinking bigger picture about the club than making sure that it's still a really great game played that way and i'd argue a better game but also it's just going to be a better model for the club to be healthier and stronger did that drive for that economic sustainability from 0809 did that last oh god yes do we eventually um, yeah any okay. club that i went through that with the mid-tier from that period um, I'd always said I would come back and look at more bunkers and, 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 uh, you know, more detailed items afterwards, but we would just give it, I've always tell everybody, whatever we do, let's give it five years and warts and all. And if everybody consistently agrees that it's just, it's an idea that needs to be fixed or changed, I'm all in. But I usually find most people after a little while kind of even embrace the quirky thing that they didn't like initially. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting is I can honestly say the clubs that I went through that with have not come back to me and said, can we do a little bit more bunkering or anything else? They're they're happy with their um, slightly more efficient design, for lack of a better term, and for their a little bit easier to maintain style, which fit the moment. But they've kind of embraced that style, which, by the way, for the most part, is just trying to get away from sand flashings that are, can be super high maintenance with, cause we get, we get a lot of rain. Um, and, and I, I see clubs sort of happy about that. And funny enough, what are they spending their money on instead? Practice facilities, chipping greens, um, yeah. uh, not, not full scale ranges, but the detail practice. So chipping areas and, and, and bunker and chipping greens and, and trying to give sort of a really good intense, um, short game facility. And they seem to be really enjoying expanding those. As I like to say, one of the funniest things I was ever told about a short game facility, a chipping facility, is French fries, French fries sales at one of the clubs I work with went up 50%. And it's because they started bringing their kids. Ah, yeah. Uh, and, they, yeah. And, they just, and they were shocked that they had so many kids in in the evenings. And what it was, was it was um, mothers and fathers who were – taking the kids away because they're busy with work normally, but they still want to play. And they, they would go, kids would practice for a little while. And then afterwards they, they just, they'd sort of settle into whatever they would do to kill some time. Parent get in that extra 10 minutes of chipping or whatever it was or putting. And then they would head in together and they'd have either a milkshake or French fries. But a friend of mine had said he could not believe because the chipping facility was right beside the clubhouse. And he said he could not believe how many kids were in there always and French fry sales, he says, it's ridiculous. We had to change our French fry ordering. <laughs> poutine? What a fantastically did, did they have positive poutine note. there, is that? <laughs> no, no, I don't think they do there. Okay, all right. That's great. I, I really want to have some 
genuine oh, Canadian I, poutine. I can ma- so. I can make it. I do duck poutine. <laughs> oh what wow! Are, what are you talking about? No, I'll take you through it later, Rod. That's you, you can Google it. Hopefully. Hopefully the listeners will understand what it is that you're talking about, and it's just me that's ignorant. Uh, what a fantastically positive note to end on, Ian. We could talk to you for hours, as always. I think we're going to end up having you back. But before we go, tell people where they can find the book and why they should read it. Uh, we probably didn't talk enough about it, truth be told. Oh, no, that's okay. Just from talking to you, I'm guessing it's going to be a fabulous read and, a, and an important uh, historical record of, of Thompson's role in the game. But tell us where people can get it and why they should buy it. Well, I think the thing they'll like the most about it is uh, I introduce you to how he became a good enough designer to design Banff, and that's 40 golf courses worth of, of development. I then take you through his five most important courses he did, right from the origins of the golf course and how they came about, the process, the people involved in construction. I show you construction photos. I show you all the plans. I show you what the golf courses look like on opening day in all cases. So I take you through uh, Jasper, Banff, St. George's, Capilano, and then finally Highland Links. And it gives you a window into his peak. And then I finish up by explaining how his his architecture changed and what he did differently before he did those courses and what he did differently afterwards. So it's a really comprehensive view on not his life history, but just purely on architecture. It's a, it's a very architecture-centric book. It's only about architecture. There is some other parts to it. I do discuss all the crazy stories about Thompson um, because they're so much fun and they're, most of them revolve around the five golf courses. Uh, email me. It's iandrew, which is I-A-N-D-R-E-W, iandrew, no S, at Simpatico. And Simpatico is S-Y-M-P-A-T-I-C-O dot C-A for Canada. So dot C-A. If you email me, that's how you'll get a link. But if you ask, just email me with questions. I have all the time in the world at the moment. Email me with any questions you like. I will send you photos of his work. So if you're curious to see what it looks like, I can even share little bits from the book as well. And people can see if they're interested. The beauty is, I will give you a link. You can go onto the link. You literally can pull the the book up on the computer, expand it out so you can see it. And you can sit there. And if you want, you could read the whole book. You wouldn't even have to buy it. But I I think you'll get an idea of how detailed it is. Essentially, my life's work has been restoring his golf courses. So I restored two of the five. And um, you'll get what a lifetime's worth of trying to learn everything I can about the man is and then I managed to show everybody drawings that nobody believed existed. I managed to find everything, and the day I found everything, it was the day I had a book. So uh, you can find me as well on uh, Twitter. Just all I got to do is search Ian Andrew on Twitter or, or Instagram, and there are some links on there for my email. If you type in Ian Andrew Golf in uh, WWE Ian Andrew Golf, I think it puts you on my website, and it's got my. Uh, my email address on there. Um, and i give you a few things to read there if you're there too. Um, anybody who's welcome to it, that was the whole idea of it. I'm not making a cent from it. I'm giving it away. But you've got to pay for the publishing. So you got to pay for the publishing and the shipping. That's it. So I figured in the world of COVID, um, which, you know, we will get through and everything will be back to normal in 12 months, to 18 months, whatever a vaccine is going to take. I figured people needed something to read, so I thought I would just give this away at that point. What a 
Interesting character. You know, the book sounds like nerd heaven. I can picture in my mind's eye Logue sitting in his bunker there, Harborside, fanning himself with the excitement of now having to go and purchase it. This is right up his alley. He's going to be on that website immediately looking up pictures and stuff from the book. I'll put links in the show notes to all of those ways to get in touch with you, Ian, and maybe a couple of links to some of the specific articles that Adrian's mentioned today, some of your essays that you've written so people can go and read it. Uh, I have to agree with his assessment that Mike Clayton of Canada's answer to Mike Clayton. I'm going along with that. That's a hat tip, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. It's been fabulous to catch up, and I don't think it's the last time we'll talk, but it's been a joy. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed your show very much. I also enjoy both of your opinions a lot, so I follow you on multiple uh, mediums. Um, uh, That's on you. That's not us. That's your thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much for everything that you write, because uh, you say a lot of things that I wish or I like to hear said. So thank well, you. It was a privilege you- to be on your show. That's all right. It's been great to have you. What you need to do now is go and get yourself your own Scrabble coach because no. you're in trouble, my friend, and you need you need to claw back into that game or there's going to be bad, bad ramifications in the long term for you. You've got to go well. slumlord. You've, you've got to be the slumlord. Buy up the cheap properties and put, put <laughs> hotels and stuff on them. Like that, yeah. That's the way to go. Start from that. What a note. What a note for you to end on, Logue. Great to chat to you today, mate. Thank you for your input and uh, been good to catch up as always. Uh, thank you very much, Rod. Uh, enjoy, man. Good to have you along if you've lasted this long. Uh, it's been a treat. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back. We will be back with episode 30 next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.